right, how are you? Good to be with you. Hey, this fall we are in a series where we're looking at the lives of the first followers of Jesus, these ordinary men and women who lived such irresistible lives, really questionable lives, that they evoked curiosity among the watching world, and as a result, their world was transformed. Such that by the end of the 4th century, over one-third of Rome's population in their entire empire confessed allegiance to Jesus Christ as king. And we're asking the question, what was it about their lives? And what can we learn from them that might also lead us to live in such a way that makes a marked difference in the communities in the city in which we too live? You know, one of the things that we know from historians that marked the early church, one of the things that set them aside and apart in a culture in which they live was that they were always sharing their tables with people, always opening up their lives to others. They were famous for their hospitality. In the fourth century, the emperor Julian wrote a letter to his officials, and in it, he marked this about the Christians' lives. He said, the Galileans begin with their so-called love feast, or hospitality, or service of tables, and for they have many ways of carrying it out, hence call it by many names. And the result is that they've led very many into atheism. And of course, in Rome, if you ever pronounce allegiance to anyone other than Caesar, that's atheism. And they loved Jesus, and Julian's saying, oh, I don't understand their lives. They get together, and they just eat. And as a result, people are moving toward Jesus, and I don't know what to do. 200 years earlier, Pliny the Younger writes to the emperor, and he's trying to figure out a solution for Christianity that's taken the empire by storm, and he said Christians would meet on a stated day in the early morning to address a form of prayer to Christ as to a divinity. Then later in the same day, they would reassemble to eat a common harmless meal. They eat potluck. He's saying, Pliny's saying, I don't know what to do, Okay. I know what to, give me a, a warrior, give me an army that's coming against, against Rome, and I can raise up an army to move against it. He says, give me someone who's trying to subvert Caesar's authority, and I will impose Caesar's authority on their lives, and I will crush that movement. But you give me a bunch of young men and women who eat together, and I don't know what to do, okay? Finally saying, what do we do? They just won't stop eating with each other. And you and I say, well, what is it? about it. What's the big deal with eating? Okay? There must have been something different about the way that they ate together, about the way they shared their lives with one another, that set them apart from every, every other culture and community that had come since, and really that has been ever since. And what we find in Romans chapter 12 is we find the Apostle Paul writing a letter into this Roman community. We know it as the book of Romans, the letter of Romans. And he writes addressing the, that very question, what is it that made them so different? And so if you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Romans. And I want to read it for you there, and we're going to look at this <clears throat> together. What was it about their lives that made them so different? Chapter 12, if you've got your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 12. Paul writes this. He says, listen, don't pretend just to love others. Really love them. Now stop there for a minute. If Christians would take these two sentences and live them out passionately, every issue in the local church and the way in which the culture perceives the local church negatively would go away. 
If we just said the one thing I'm going to do as a Christian is to really love the people around me and not just pretend like I do, we wouldn't have a lot of problems, okay? Within the local church or within the culture. He goes on and says, well, how do we actually do that? Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with a genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. And when God's people are in need, in need be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice what? Hospitality. Always be eager to practice hospitality. He says we're to really love one another, not just pretend like we do. And then he gives us several ways to do it. And I just want to point out two for you. The first is in verse 10, when Paul writes that we're to love one another with a genuine affection. And that word love in verse 10 comes from a Greek word, Philadelphia. You and I know it as brotherly love. It's a familial kind of love. And he applies it in the context of the local church. And he says, we are to love one another with a family kind of love. Okay? Now, I don't know about your family, but one of the ways that our family loves each other is with food. We just eat together, okay? Just last night at the Husker game, okay? Not at the Husker game, okay? Unless you envy watching the Husker game, okay? And we ate a lot of food because we love to eat as a family. You know, I've been here a year this weekend. And when I first showed up, I made a number of uh, comments about the Nebraska Cornhuskers that fell flat on this crowd. And in the last year, I've come to gather that it's because we're actually in Iowa, okay? And so uh, I just want to do a little poll in here for a moment to know where we're at. Some of you, there are a handful of you in here who are Hawkeye fans, right? A handful of you, okay? It's great. <clears throat> all right, all 28 of you, you just stay strong, okay? Stay strong. Not the best year, but that's okay. You keep going. And then there are a number of us, right, who are Husker fans, all right? Get a little what? What? Oh, okay, okay. Now I want to calm down because I don't want to incite a riot, okay? Here's, uh, all right, here's the beautiful thing. You guys get together and you worship without fistfights. Isn't that great? And I don't think it's because you're pretending to love each other. I think it's because you actually love each other, right? Right? I've already offended my first Hawkeye fan. I'm sorry. I love you guys. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> if anyone else wants to follow, I guess now's the time. No, I'm just joking. Uh, right, right? So we love each other, okay? And we come together. Now, listen. One of the ways we show love with one another as families is we eat together. And food matters in our culture. If you doubt whether or not that's true, you throw a football party this weekend and you serve no food. And you see how long your friends stay around. You think they come because of you. They don't come because of you, okay? You just serve the best food on the block, all right? And the minute that food goes away, no. So food matters in our culture. And one of the ways we communicate that we love one another is by coming around the table and enjoying one another over great food. But then Paul goes on in verse 13, and he says, not only do I want you to love one another genuinely, but I want you, verse 13, notice, always be eager to practice hospitality. And the word hospitality is a different Greek word, which means to love strangers or visitors. And so on one hand, Paul says, I want you to Philadelphia, brotherly love one another as a family. And on the other hand, I want you to Philoxenia, I want you to love strangers and visitors. And that's the spectrum he gives us on which to show hospitality to the world around us. We need to show hospitality. 
In the first century, inns and hotels were not very common in safe form. They were everywhere on major routes, but they were sketchy. They were kind of the place you'd tell like your 18-year-old daughter not to go near, okay? And so no one wanted to go into these places because they were dangerous and they smelled and you get your money stolen. It was just an awful place to be in. So Christians, recognizing this, they begin to build communities uh, where people on their way from one place to another could stay in people's homes. They could be drawn in and be served a meal. They could, could live kind of their journey in safe locations along uh, one destination to another. And in doing so, they showed love to strangers. One of the ways the Christians transformed the ancient world was, was by loving people around them with whom they had nothing in common with. And in their book, right here, right now, Alan, Alan Hirsch and Lance Ford describe how the table is the great equalizer in relationships. They say, while we eat together, we discover the inherent humanity of all people. We share stories and hopes and fears and disappointments. He says, we open up to each other on a far deeper level than when we do in the office or even in our cul-de-sac. And they go on to write this. They say, sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Say missional hospitality, which is simply this, being hospitable to open people's eyes to the beauty of Jesus. Missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. He writes, if every Christian household regularly invited a stranger or a poor person into their home for a meal once a week, we would literally change the world by eating. Now, don't you love that? Because some of you, you dream when you go to bed at night, how am I going to change the world? And I've finally given you the solution. Start eating and be purposeful in the way you do it and learn to do it in a missional way whereby through encouragement and service, you open people's eyes to the beauty and the goodness of Jesus. There was no one who got this better than Jesus. You know, there's only three places in the Gospels. If you love the Gospels, you'll maybe notice this. If you've never heard of a Gospel, let me just open your eyes to who Jesus is for a moment. Only three places that Jesus says of himself, the Son of Man came to fill in the blank. Luke chapter 19, three places, I'll give them to you. Luke chapter 19, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why I came, to bring people back into my Father's arms. And then in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, and here's how I came. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. So I, I came to seek and save the lost. And how did I come? I came as a servant. And then do you know what the third way is? In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, how did I come? For the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You love that? One of the primary ways that Jesus broke down cultural, religious, socioeconomic barriers to show people the kindness and mercy of God is he just ate and drank. You love that? In fact, he valued eating and drinking so much that he got a reputation for doing it too much. And for some of us who have been around the church, we need to listen to this. Our king came to eat and drink. 
And I find that the more Christians hang around the local church, the crustier they get. And they forget the value of dining and enjoying good food and good drink for the good of their neighbors and the glory of Jesus. And for some of us, this might shake up our social context in which we're living so we can see there's a new way in which to live that can have profound impact on the people around us. You say, well, why did Jesus eat and drink so much? Author Ben Meyer wrote about this. He said, you know, during Jesus' time, a person would never eat with someone who is different than them. A Jew would never eat with a Gentile, a Gentile with a Jew. A rich person would never eat with the poor, the poor with the rich. A God-fearer would never eat with a Samaritan or a Samaritan with them. And he said, Jesus came and he turned this entire social construct on its head. He said, before Jesus came, here's how the, the culture flowed. You convert first and then commune with me. But Ben Meyer says, Jesus reversed this structure. Communion first, conversion second. His table fellowship with sinners implied no acquiescence in their sins for the gratuity of the reign of God canceled none of its demands. Here's what he's saying. He's saying when Jesus dined with them, he wasn't condoning their sin. He just didn't pay attention to their sin a lot. Instead, he ate with them. And in eating with them, all of that came to the surface anyway. And he looked across the table and said, I love you and accept you. And he changed the world. Go on. In a world in which sinners stood ineluctably condemned, Jesus' openness to them was irresistible. Contact triggered repentance, conversion flowered from communion. And in this tense little world in Palestine, where religious meanings were the warp and the woof of the social order, it said this was a potent phenomenon. What was it? Listen. Communion first, conversion second. You know what it is in our culture, especially in the context of the local church today, why the culture looks on the local church and criticizes it for being exclusive, judgmental, hypocritical? You know why? Because we demand conversion first, and then I'll dine with you. You believe like me, then you can hang out with me. You smell like me, then you can come to my small group. You look like me and talk like me, and then I'll share my life with you. And Jesus says, that's never been the way of the kingdom. You look across the table, the people that you're around, and you tell them you accept them. And before long, you'll get to heart-level conversations in which lives are changed. That's the way Jesus did it, and it's the way we should as well. So for the last 52 weeks, on and off, I've been encouraging you to be hospitable, to open your lives to share your tables. And I understand when I talk hospitality, I get it that for some of us, especially guys, you're anything like me, you hear this and you start to twitch and sweat. You're like, hospitality is like your mind goes to the Food Network channel. And I just want to, in a moment, just disperse all of those misconceptions you have and talk about how you and I can live hospitable lives that alert others to the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. But before I do, I want to give you three things, if you're taking notes, that I think hinder us from becoming hospitable people. Three would all call hospitality records that keep you and I from living hospitable lives. Okay, taking notes, write these down. Number one is pride. Pride will always ruin a spirit of hospitality. I remember early on in our marriage when we had kids, Beth and I would have people over to the house often. And when we did, I would become a not very fun person. 
And I remember just all the tension in our home as we would invite people over. Now listen, as a parent, there's no better way to foster the, the children, the hearts of your children for hospitality than be, by becoming a grumpy parent, okay? Like you're just like, Dad, can we have people over? I love it when you're mean, okay? So my kids are like... I created all these tensions in, in our home, and it took years for me to figure out that what was going on is I could not bear to have people in our house unless the house was perfect. And this was unfair to Beth, and it placed an undue burden on her, and it killed the joy in our home. And listen, you and I both know what perfect in our home means, you know? It means you don't show anyone the room where you put all of the stuff that you don't know want them to see, right? You got that room? Anyone got that room? Okay. You have me over to your house. We'll enjoy dinner. I will not ask to see your room. Okay? I will not. That's what perfect means. Let's just get it out there. No one has a perfect home. We just play like we do. And the more we play like we do, listen, the more perfect you are, the more dysfunctional you are. So show your imperfections, okay, and have people in. But what would happen is I couldn't invite people in and I had to ultimately repent of that pride. You know, it's interesting. Paul describes hospitality in this way. He says, love one another with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. You know, when your pride keeps you from inviting people into your lives, you know what you're doing in that moment? You're thinking more of yourself than the people that you're inviting in, which is why pride stymies genuine hospitality. So you be honest with that about Jesus. I don't want to invite people into that room. I don't want them to see my house. I don't want them to see our dysfunction. And you let him work some stuff out in your life, and then you begin to invite people in. Now, here's the deal. I know at the 1045 service, we got high schoolers in here. We got some college students. We got young adults, okay? I know that not all of us can whip up a five-course meal. I get that, okay? And some of us with our bride, mac and cheese is the best we do on Friday night, okay? So when I talk hospitality, I know some of you are like, I don't even know where to begin. So this is a little solution. I give this to anyone who asks. Three C's if you want to have people over. This is for free. It has nothing to do with the message, okay? Three C's if people come over that you can remember whereby you can be hospitable. Number one, clean your toilet. Okay, it matters. Number two, light a candle. And number three, order Chinese food. Five minutes, okay, five minutes, you can be a hospitable person tomorrow night. Okay, so do that. Number two, next barrier is pace. Not only our pride, but our pace is a hospitality record in our lives. Here's what I mean. Take a moment if you've got a connection card in front of you, if you've got some paper in front of you, and write down the last time you had someone into your home or invited someone out to a meal who was not a family member. Write that down. Last time you invited someone into your home or you took them out for a meal and paid for it and they were not a family member. Now, some of you are going to say, that was yesterday, okay? I, I invited a colleague out to lunch on Friday. We had a family over at our house last night. I know that some of you are living this out. Can I encourage you to keep doing that? But for some of us, we can't remember the last time that we opened our home, can we? We can't recall the last time that we invited someone out to eat and paid for it and we're hospitable to them with our resources. Why? I would suggest to you that many of us run at such a hectic pace that we have very little to no time for people. Isn't it true? that in many of our lives, there's simply no margin. Years ago, Beth and I had a great couple over to house, dear friends, 
And a friend of mine, Chris, I was talking with, and, and he said to me, Jed, he said, one of the reasons we have stopped inviting you over, now if any of your friends ever say that, you pay close attention to what they say next. One of the reasons is because we thought you were too busy. He said, you know, after it, you said no enough times, we just thought you had better things going on. My friend Chris, I don't think he knows Jesus personally. And I had in my life communicated to him that my schedule was more important than his family. And I remember when he said this, it was just one of those like, ah, oh, moments. And that God used to wake me up to the fact that I had arranged my life in such a way that there, were no, there was no room for the people that he cared deeply for. My pace was killing my spirit of hospitality. Now, I want you to notice verse 13. Paul says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. And then he says this, always be eager to practice hospitality. Can you read that last part with me out loud? Always be eager to practice hospitality. Now, let me ask you, if you're running at such a pace where you have no time for people outside of family, is it possible for you to always be eager to practice hospitality? No. And so for many of us, for us to practice means that we are going to have to clear our schedule and create margin and begin to block off parts of our lives and our schedules to invite people in. We're going to have to practice. You have to roll up your sleeves and do the hard, awkward work of figuring it out. But when you do, God will begin to unleash opportunities that you have never seen whereby to share your life and love with people and you will be surprised at what he is able to do. And finally, the third hospitality wrecker that I find so often in the local church is not pride or pace, but is simply passivity. It's passivity. It's that somehow we've forgotten that hospitality isn't merely a nice suggestion, but it's a holy imperative. Paul doesn't say, hey, if you get around to it, if you feel like it, he says, always be eager, do this. And in so doing it, alert the world to my beauty and goodness and my reign. I find many of us as Christians believe that Jesus came to die for our sins and the story of what he did on the cross moves us deeply and of course it should. But Jesus didn't only come to die for our sins. He came to teach us how to live and to show us how to be human. And so while being a Christian means relating to Jesus as your savior, it also means following him as king. You know what a disciple means? I mean, someone who learns from and lives like the master. And so as followers of Jesus, if you are one, we're to be learning from, and by the empowerment of the Spirit alive in us, we are living more and more like Jesus as he leads us. And if Jesus, our King, became a friend of drunks, gluttons, and sinners, so much so that he got labeled one himself, we would do well to begin to arrange our lives in such a way that maybe, by the grace of God, we could get such a reputation where people look at your life and say, man, do you see how he eats? Do you see how they eat and drink with people around them? 
by no means am I talking about doing so in a way that dishonors God or his design for your body that causes any kind of, I'm not talking, that's a whole different conversation. I'm saying how to use good food and good drink for the good of those around you and the glory of God. Can you imagine if people are like, man, they throw the best parties in the block. Man, they're the most hospitable people I've ever been around. Have you ever had his steak? Have you ever eaten her or whatever that might be? Casserole? I don't know what you make. Steak. Maybe steak. I don't know. Have you ever done that? And you just get a reputation for living in a questionable way. Some of you are asking the question, Jed, is hospitality really that big of a deal? And I would suggest to you that it really is. It really matters. In a Middle Eastern context in which Jesus lived and spoke, when you came around the table with someone and looked them in the eyes, you told them, I accept you. I accept you. Without ever having to speak. And in our culture, the same is true. Your and my tendency is to surround ourselves with people like us or who we like. People of similar social background, economic levels, political affiliations, religious beliefs. And in so doing so, we can, we can trick ourselves into believing that our community, our sphere of influence is broad, but it's not. Jesus says, if you begin to be hospitable, you'll be more and more like me. He broke every cultural standard. He broke every social norm. He looked across the table into people's eyes and in doing so, he said, I accept you. It should not surprise us, therefore, that in the last moments before Jesus died, he threw a party and he hosted a meal and he invited his closest followers into a room and he took bread and he broke it and he took a cup and he passed it and he said, when you eat this bread from this point on, until we're reunited again in the kingdom, eat this bread and remember what I've done for you. Take this drink and drink it and remember my life that will be spilt out on your behalf. And he gave us this beautiful picture of the gospel, which is the ultimate picture of hospitality. Don't you see? You and I were strangers, separated from God by our sin, but Jesus Christ pursued us, brought us in, cleaned us up, and called us friends of the King. Don't you see it? You and I were enemies of God. But Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He died the death we deserve to die to make us sons and daughters. You see that? The gospel's the ultimate picture of hospitality. He looks across the table at you and he says, I accept you. You're mine. And so in a moment, we're going to come around these tables and we're going to be reminded of who Jesus is for us. He's a hospitable God who invites us in as we are. But you know, when the early Christians came around the table together, they were reminded that not only was the Lord's Supper a celebration of what Jesus has done, but it was a motivation to live their lives like Jesus. And don't you know when we come around these tables that we don't only celebrate what God has done, we don't only have peace and joy and confidence in our lives, but we go out to live like him. It's a divine motivation wrapped up in this meal that we share.
And so before we get there, I want to encourage you as we close with one very practical way to put this into practice in your life. If you're taking notes, you know, every week um, during this series, we're giving you a habit so that you can cultivate like values in your life. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we encouraged you to pray for one person every week, every day. And this, e- this week, I got an email from a young gal who said, Jeg, you know what? Every day I've been praying this prayer that God would give me one person to love. And she said, you know, in weeks past, I've sort of done so flippantly. Um, but this week, I started actually praying it and looking for ways to love people. And she said, God began to open my eyes to what he was doing all around me. And I was able to bless people in my life. So this week, continue to pray for one person every day. God, give me one person to show your love to. And then last week, we encouraged you to bless three people every week by bringing joy into their lives, by alleviating burdens, by removing stress. And so this week, continue to bless three people. But this week, the habit we want to encourage you to is to begin eating with people. Eat with them. Some of you say, you know, I can do that, all right? And I'm not talking about throwing a dinner party. I'm not talking about throwing three separate dinner parties. I'm talking about taking the 21 times you already eat during a week and purposefully leveraging three of them. So you go to work tomorrow. You take a colleague out to work. Young gal, young guy that you see every time you come in there. I'm not encouraging dating in hospitality, although maybe that'll play out well for you. I don't know. But I'm encouraging guys, you know, you get together with a guy and you say, can I take you out to lunch? I just want to hear your story. How can I encourage you? How's work going? Do far more listening than you do talking. Pay for the meal. Gals, take your friends out and just say, hey, how are you doing in work and home and community as a mother? You encourage her. Gals, guys, maybe you stay at home with the kids. If so, leverage your week in a new way. As you get together with other moms, you get together with other dads, share a meal together. Share stories. Celebrate what you see God doing. Have people into your home. Throw a neighborhood barbecue number of ways that you can eat with people. But can I encourage you to begin doing that this week? Three meals that you share with someone else. And not only with people of similar faith belief, but people who don't know Jesus at all. And see what God can do. Eat with three people this week. And even more beautifully, you know what you could do before we get around to the Lord's Supper is you could start right now by going out of this place, not like, hey, I got to get to my Sunday plans, a lot of good football on, but by saying, you know what, there's a lot of people in this room that I could look around and invite out to a lunch and we could start being hospitable today. It's probably an area for us to grow in as a community. Let's practice it today. Be hospitable. In his book, um, Happy Hour, Hugh Halter writes this about hospitality. Let me leave it with you as a place of encouragement. He says that out of all the things we think are marks of the church, sacred elements or traditions we should hold dear to like baptism and communion and Christmas or Easter celebrations. A simple party is a place where heaven and earth come together. The party isn't an end in itself, but it's a huge beginning that sometimes ends with someone putting their faith in Jesus. Wouldn't it be beautiful if we left this place committed to creating environments where heaven and earth come together? where people's hearts are stirred for the beauty of Jesus, where you look across the table into their eyes and without saying a word, you say, I accept you. You know what would happen? You would change your little corner of the world. Historically, it's always happened that way. 
And I pray that God does that in you this week. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We love you and we're grateful for Romans chapter 12 that implores us to love each other with a genuine infection, to be hospitable toward one another, to open our lives. And so I pray this week in the same way, Jesus, that you've opened your life to us, that you've invited us in, that you've called us friends, that we would do the same to those around us. Jesus, we love you. We want to be hospitable people. We want to alert the world to your reign. We want to live in contagious, questionable ways so that hearts might be stirred toward you. We want to be good friends, great neighbors for the joy of others and for your glory. So we pray that by your spirit, you would motivate us toward that today. And we will live our lives for you completely. In your name we pray.